You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Hello again and welcome to the latest Lodestar extravaganza. Ahead of TPM 22 in Long Beach at the end of February, we'll be examining some of the key challenges facing those in the business of supply chain and those wondering how much logistics costs will slash off their bottom lines. We'll be looking at freight rates across modes post-Chinese New Year and ahead of the Trans-Pacific contracting season. The latter, of course, clouded by US West Coast dock workers negotiations that could hurt port productivity. And then we're going to be examining labor shortages, the great resignation as some have dubbed it, in a Lodestar special report. In this episode, I'm joined by the great and the greater of supply chain and freight. For your delectation, we have the ever-listenable Peter Sand from Zenita and the Lodestar's very own Alex Lenane. Bloomberg Intelligence's Lee Klaskow will be explaining how corporate America is coping with supply chain chaos. We speak to JOC and TPM stalwart Peter Tershwell. And on labour shortages, we'll be sharing the thoughts of Select Appointments UK specialist Claire French and Jason Miller, Associate Professor of Logistics at Eli Broad College of Business. The best measure we have of labour shortages actually comes from the Census Bureau from a survey about, you know, why are manufacturing plants not operating at full capacity? And right now, plants are saying, this is one of the top reasons that we are not operating at full capacity. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Here we are once more with another whistle-stop tour of global logistics, shipping, and air freight. Joining me on this merry ramble today are two figures divided by geography, but united in their dedication to providing Lodestar podcast listeners with their unrivaled insight and expertise into pretty much everything. Fresh from surviving three named storms in one week while on board the Lodestar super yacht moored near Felixstowe, it's our very own Alex Lenane. How are you drying out, Alex? Hi, Mike. We're, we're, we're bearing up, thank you. Yeah, we stopped rocking. <laughs> And uh, well, that's good to hear. And joining me once more from Copenhagen, which in many ways, but mostly just because he calls it home, is Europe's shipping capital. A big welcome back, Zenita Chief Shipping Analyst, Peter Sand. Thank you so much, uh, Mike. And I look forward to, to add a bit of uh, rock and roll also to, to Alex, not uh, rocking the yacht, but, uh, but definitely spilling the beans in, in, in terms of our focus today. Alex, most of the top 10 shipping lines now have some investment in air cargo, whether that's a legacy holding or in the case of MERS, CMA, CGM and MSC, because they're investing in new supply chain capacity or at least trying to. Uh, as you've been covering the, uh, the load staff, forwarders are also buying up charter capacity. How much of all of this is down to current freight rates and these massive war chests that some of these companies, particularly the lines, have built up? And how much is it down to the failures of the air cargo product itself as it's traditionally been provided by airlines and forwarders and, and their stakeholders? I think it's a mixture, Mike. I think 
we've seen a lot of forwarders taking long-term or longish-term charge capacity. There was a, there was more last week with Atlas Air and Kuna Nagel. I think it's about control of the supply chain. I think the shippers and forwarders have clearly been fairly put out by the lack of reliability of shipping lines, obviously, but also the airlines who have had a difficult time and scheduling has been hard, capacity has been difficult. So I think they want to guarantee that capacity to make sure that their customers are able to function properly. Um, obviously, the rates have still been very high. I mean, the TAC index at the moment is showing them come down just a little bit. So the rates are as they were in a sort of September, August last year. I expect we'll see them level off or perhaps even go up a bit. I'm not sure. It's still a bit murky at the moment. But I think in terms of the forwarders and the shipping lines, I think they're trying to get the seamless integrated logistics supply chain and incorporating air cargo into that. Alex, you've also been covering some of the hows and whys of the failures of this traditional air freight package in the UK. Why are costs uh, in the UK soaring at the moment? I think they're soaring all over the place, to be honest. But the ground handlers in the UK in particular are struggling with really high labour costs that have gone up enormously, plus higher fuel costs, plus congestion in forwarder warehouses, in their own warehouses, driver shortage. Their costs have gone up. The difficulty for them is that they've been unable to get those costs back from the airlines. Everyone else has made a fortune during uh, COVID, but the airlines and the ground handlers aren't, aren't changing their agreements. So the handlers haven't been able to make good margins on it. So their difficulty is that they now need to try and get the money off the forwarders. It's, it's difficult for them, to be honest. Alex, one of the Lodestar's leading stories in the third week of February on a very different topic was Nick Savidi's reporting on European forwarders asking the EC's competition directorate to urgently investigate, and I quote, distortions in the line of shipping market. Now, these claims are not exactly new in the sense that forwarders and shippers have been making allegations a little bit like this about cartelization of line of shipping and its impact and on pricing and services for longer than I can remember. But things are slightly different during this pandemic with certainly where prices are. We're going to look at that regulatory environment a little bit more in upcoming Lodestar podcast when Nick's going to join me and we can discuss what's going to happen legally in the EU and elsewhere. But Alex, just in recent weeks, this isn't the only action on competition policy, is it? Well, no, we've got the five eyes, which is the English speaking countries, UK, Australia, New Zealand, America, Australia. They have come together to have a look at it, which is slightly difficult in the sense that the major shipping lines are European and Asia and they're not included. But I think, it, again, it's from the, from the shippers and the forwarders, it's about wanting to have some control over the system that they're using. And they feel that the shipping lines have had way too many advantages from the um, block exemption regulation, and they just don't think it's, it's very fair. I suspect this is a story that's going to keep going all year. We were starting to hear about it at the end of last year. And I also think that because the shipping lines have got a lot of money, there is uh, an incentive for some of the justice uh, authorities, regulatory authorities to perhaps relieve them of some of that. Yeah, that has happened before. And I certainly remember <laughs> that happening in the air freight industry in the past. For sure. So yeah, where, where there's, a, where there's a, a big bag of gold, it tends to be a little bit of a target in some <laughs> jurisdictions. I think that's the case. Peter, do you have anything to add to that in terms of that regulatory risk or other risks for, for shipping lines and supply chain players at, at the moment in this market? Yeah, I think uh, with, uh, without doubt, uh, we, we call it a regulatory risk, but uh, 
being being blunt here, Mike, the one thing that we need is for regulators to enable global trade and not uh, set up uh, risks for anyone to, uh, to, to deal with uh, in an unnecessary fashion. But then again, the shippers of the world are requesting an efficient market. And without doubt, of competition authorities uh, at either end of the world are right now scrutinizing, of course, uh, the whereabouts of a global liner shipping market. Uh, so far, they have uh, they have not come up with, say, any wrongdoings, but I doubt that will uh, continue to, to be the case if they uh, if they go further down into the details. They may not be found in, uh, in, in doing anything wrong, but regulators may Maybe, well, in, in some sort of way, you can say impacted by uh, various powerful uh, lobbies to set up uh, things that, uh, that, that may or may not benefit uh, the local shippers, perhaps uh, giving them some sort of, say, an advantage in, in the game against uh, the, the global liner shipping market. But uh, I think we, everyone in that market should be careful what they wish for, uh, because I think everything also uh, comes at a price. So I think everybody should remain calm carry on, but be very much aware that, that the regulators uh, should enable trade, not put it at risk. I, I think you're right. There's definitely some lobbying momentum. And obviously this is a result of, of the market that we're seeing in the last two years. And that is behind this regulatory steam that's building, which I agree. And I don't really see this dimming anytime soon, not least when, you know, unlike in most previous years, we've barely seen a contraction in spot rates on the ocean side since Chinese New Year on those major trades. What's what's going on there, Peter? Yeah, I think uh, what we have seen in terms of uh, of uh, trade impacted uh, by the Chinese Lunar New Year, I think we can basically call it uh, seasonality is off. You may have seen uh, the analysis that we put out from Seneta only a short while ago, basically uh, trying to compare how uh, spot uh, markets have developed from pre. Chinese Lunar New Year till the end of it. Uh, and, and everybody knows that that is normally trending down. But that was not the case. It was basically only Far East to Europe that was uh, all about seasonality with a small uh, decline in freight rates uh, from mid-Jan to just the week after Chinese Lunar New Year. But uh, if we update ourselves with the most recent days also, we can see that, uh, that some of that decline has now been erased and we are basically just seeing a small uptick in, in the spot market for Far East to Europe right now at some 14,400. Uh, but but also in, in terms of the long-term market, and I think the long-term market is really where things are uh, heating up uh, at the moment. We see long-term freight rates, uh, Mike, across the board, uh, all main trades trending uh, upwards. Um, the Far East to Europe is now at uh, 9,400. But there is one place where the long-term market is heating up in combination with the uh, geography to the U.S. West Coast. That's that's basically the the melting pot uh, at the moment. We see long-term freight rates increasing 10% from mid-February to where they sit now at at nine point nine thousand two hundred dollars uh, per per FAU. And that's already up 20% from January. So that's really a steep increase that shippers are required to pay in order to get that much needed and much in-demand resilience into the supply chains. But I, I think it's fair to say that, well, the U.S. retail sales uh, numbers are still super duper strong. So that's, of course, why uh, shippers are keen to secure the space on board primarily and secondly, do the, the diehard bargaining on the final uh, uh, rates. Some of the big moving parts in terms of factory output from China 
as we've covered on the Lodestar podcast previously, have been its uh, strict zero COVID policy, Beijing Olympics, the Lunar New Year holidays. Now, looking at those holidays, in the 10 days to 17th of February, Namora identified five major COVID clusters in China, including in manufacturing centers such as uh, Shenzhen and Suzhou, where tech companies are reported to have shut down plants as part of that containment process. Namora also found that only 58% of workers had returned to employment by that 17th of February cutoff this year after Lunar New Year holidays, which is 4.4 percentage points lower than in 2019. How significant are these lockdowns and their slower return to work post-Chinese New Year for the freight market, Peter? They are quite significant. And I think that is the main headline that you should expect also going forward. Say more disruptions in China in whatever form they may take, but with one headline, the zero COVID policies. But it also explains to me, to a large extent, why carriers were so much uh, in doubt on what was the right strategy going into the Chinese Lunar New Year, because normally you would see uh, blank sailings left, right, and center. But this time around, uh, you saw uh, some carriers do that. You saw other carriers literally adding capacity on top of what they used to deploy uh, pre and post Chinese Lunar New Year. So it explains basically that they are working from one contingency plan to the other. And you should basically consider your options every single morning when you step in. I think I'm, I'm afraid to, to bring that point up that there are more risks today than, than ever before. And I'm not only talking about the cyber attacks at the, uh, the freight forwarder expediters, uh, but also, of course, the, uh, the new politics around, uh, around Ukraine. Uh, so, so there's just so many different aspects of global shipping that is affecting every single box uh, moving out. And, and those, say, manufacturing stats and uh, COVID outbreaks that, that you just brought forward. I think now that we are also, say, past the Winter Olympic Games, you can expect anything. And I am just popping the question here. If, if you're considering any easing of the global supply chain strains, well, you should look twice, I think. As Peter Sand alludes, there are a number of risks hanging over global commerce right now that make planning very, very difficult. We'll come to what's happening in Ukraine a little bit later on. But firstly, one of those big risks is negotiations at the moment about a new stevedoring deal on the US West Coast, which is going to be one of the big topics discussed at TPM, which is going to take place at the end of February in Long Beach, which is a good time to bring in my next guest, a former colleague of mine who's been fundamental to the success of both TPM and the Journal of Commerce, where he's worked for almost exactly 30 years. It is VP for Maritime and Trade at IHS Market. Hello, Peter Tershwell, and congratulations on that anniversary. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Peter, I was over in uh, Long Beach for TPM in 2020, only for, for it to be called off as COVID spread rapidly through California. Literally, it was called off as I checked into my hotel. TPM 22 is running Sunday, 27th of February, finishing on the 2nd of March. You must be pretty excited to get things moving properly and finally seeing people face to face again at such a big event. Completely, Mike. I mean, my, the team and I are, are overjoyed. We're excited. We're, we're ready to go. You know, this is going to be the first TPM in three years because as you say, the 2020 event was unfortunately canceled, but 
I mean, we were getting so nervous about what we were seeing on the COVID front. Then just in the week before TPM 2020 was going to begin, we saw the first community spread case in California. We saw the first U.S. fatality and our level of nervousness, shall we say, just kind of reached a frothing crescendo. It just happened to be the day before TPM was going to begin. So we know we inconvenienced any number of people, but we don't regret the decision. Uh, so now, two years later, the COVID cases are receding, Omicron cases are receding. We have a, a whole, a pretty uh, robust COVID admission policy in place uh, where people are going to have to present both a proof of vaccination and we will administer a rapid test. And then people who are negative are going to be free to go for the duration of the event. So we think that we got all that locked down. Uh, we've got a very large audience that is going to be on hand. And obviously, Mike, no shortage of subject matter to discuss because, you know, the whole industry has been turned completely upside down due to the pandemic and its impact on trade. And, and we're not seeing that slow down. We're not seeing things improve. So clearly there's a, a great opportunity right now for people to come together and sort of try to restore relationships and sort of on a person to person basis, start to resolve some of all these issues that we're seeing. As you say, yeah, a lot, lot of things to cover. And since the last TPM, it's a, a tumultuous and transformative couple of years for our industry. I mean, by the time TPM starts, and I hope not, but we might even have a major war in Europe, which will be exceptionally disruptive for the bulk and the container trade, well, global trade. Uh, was the hardest thing this year deciding what not to include? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because we could have put on a program that was double the number of sessions than what, what we have, because we only have limited space in the convention center and in Hyatt. I mean, as it turned out, the, 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 the event will have 50 sessions total. So there was, there was a ton of subject matter that we were, that we were able to include. And yet at the same time, I mean, there's so many dimensions to what's happening, the, the fundamental assumptions. That, that everybody has uh, versus, versus two years ago have completely changed and, and per, potentially for the long term. So you have to completely reorient yourself in terms of how you approach this market, irrespective of what angle you're coming at it from, whether you're a, you know, a shipper, or a carrier, or a forwarder, it's changed for everyone. So what we're going to be trying to do in this event through our speakers and, and the discussion that we're going to be leading is to try to uh, bring out enough perspectives so that people who are attending can at least ha have a, a more well-informed uh, orientation to or towards approaching 2022, whether it's contract negotiations or overcoming the, the debilitating congestion that still exists out, out there at the ports or just sort of business strategy. And how do you kind of position yourself in this type of a market? Just looking at your 30 years, Peter, have you ever seen, in terms of the challenges facing U.S. and global players in supply chains, have you ever seen anything like this, the challenges that they're looking at, but 2022, but into 2023? Uh, no, of course not. I mean, what we're seeing right now, this type of disruption has never been experienced any, at any time in the history of container shipping, going back to Malcolm McLean. There's never been anything like it, and it's not receding either. Occasionally you see uh, articles in general circulation media and you've seen them also saying, oh, the supply chain crisis is receding. Things are getting back to normal. Uh, we don't see it. We don't see it at all. And, and the people we're talking to are like right there on the docks. I was having a, a dialogue with an ILW longshoreman, uh, not about contract negotiations, simply about flow of containers through terminals at LA Long Beach. This is just last night. What he was saying was, yeah, you know, we're able to work the ships, but 
the flow of containers out of the terminal remains very, very slow. So therefore this whole kind of flow that needs to occur from ship, the ship docking, the containers being unloaded, flowing out of the terminal, whether they're from there to cross docks, distribution centers, uh, wherever it is, is, is still thoroughly disrupted. And, and the longer that it's disrupted, the more capacity is going to remain off the table because ships are waiting offshore. And when capacity is off the table, it means that the freight rates going to remain high, especially because the, the volumes are still so elevated. And there's not a lot of indication, at least in the U.S. that we were seeing, that, that the consumers are uh, beginning to really scale back purchases or that the swing back to a normal ratio of spending on travel and leisure and home improvement, that that has been restored to pre-pandemic levels. So there's a lot of indication out there that, that the volumes are going to continue to be strong for several more months this year. And that means that the sort of the ultimate safety valve uh, or, or pressure relief to the system is really not going to necessarily materialize. You mentioned the ILWU there, Peter. Just for our listeners, we're speaking second half of February, just in case events overtake us. Uh, negotiations are ongoing between the Pacific Maritime Association representing container lines and port interests and the Longshore Workers Union representing 20-odd thousand dock workers. Uh, this is about a new stevedoring deal for the U.S. West Coast. The current deal expires July 1st. You also mentioned the contracting season as well, which, you know, these things are overlapping slightly. Now, the ILWU has already turned down a one-year extension to this deal. How would you describe to low-star listeners what's at stake in these negotiations for people in the shipping industry, but also for U.S. commerce or global commerce and trade? Well, I mean, let's be honest. There's a, a great deal of concern that these negotiations will break down and that there will be even more disruption on the docks on the West Coast. It's not a certainty. It hasn't happened yet, but there have been uh, disruption on the West Coast docks during every negotiation between the ILW and the PMA going back to the 1990s. And this year, there's a couple of factors that are new factors. One would weigh in favor of less disruption, and that would mean uh, a political factor. The fact that it is a very high priority of the Biden administration, which also happens to be a friend of labor, to keep cargo moving through the ports. That's why they appointed a port, env a port envoy, uh, John Porcari, directly representing the White House. He's going to be a speaker at TPM. Uh, and why uh, the, the, the administration has been right in the middle to try to clear the docks, such as backing the, uh, the threatened fee on long-dwelling containers, that sort of thing. So will the union engage in disruptive activities against the wishes of a friendly government? I mean, that's, that's a question. On the other side, there's a huge clash over terminal handling automation. So the, the union in 2008 agreed that automation of container handling could occur on the West Coast. Now they have completely changed their view and they now want to deny the terminal operators the ability to automate their terminals. Well, the, the problem with that is that the union ever since 2008 has already been very heavily compensated for giving away the right to automate and to the tune of something like $800 million of, of compensation in wages and benefits. So the employers are saying, well, if you're going to take away my right to automation, what happens to that $800 million? But the other 
point of this is that they uh, that there are more terminals that are going to want to automate the TTI terminal in Long Beach, which is uh, a ma- majority owned by uh, MSC, the largest carrier in the world. They are planning to automate. Other terminals are planning to automate, and there's a good reason for it too. It's not just to fire dock workers and lower their costs. It's simply because in order for the ports at LA Long Beach to grow, the only way to do that is to densify the operations. There's no more land. You know, you've been there, Mike, and I've been there, and anybody who's been there knows that there's not a single square foot of land to expand those ports. And so therefore, the expansion is going to have to come through densification. Densification really is predicated on, on automation. So this is a big area of potential clash, and which is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people are worried over what's going to happen during these upcoming negotiations. Uh, and just for a bit of context, these aren't high scoring ports in terms of port productivity or terminal productivity indexes, are they? They do need to improve performance. And I guess that's been shown very clearly over the last couple of years. Yeah, no question. I mean, the U.S. ports have ranked very, very low in, in productivity. In part, that is due to how quickly uh, containers are moved through the yard and, and out the door, like we were talking about earlier, because you can't create, like what you're referring to, Mike, is, is the birth, pro- well, you might be referring to as the birth productivity rankings, which is the IHS market data in collaboration with the World Bank. And what those show is that the birth productivity in the United States is very, very low. In North America, it's very, very low. But you don't achieve higher birth productivity when you don't have available land to deposit the containers. So one of the things that we're seeing, that same data shows that the the length of time that vessels are at the berth at ports like LA Long Beach is double what it was pre-pandemic. Well, if the ships are taking up the parking spot for double the amount of time, well, then that's the reason why there were 75, 80 ships a record 109 ships on January 9th waiting to get in the ports because there's no place to unload the cargo from the ships. That's why the ships are waiting there longer. So unless you create, you know, an overall fluid flow, then the the problem is ever going to get solved. You mentioned before that uh, President Biden's got a lot riding on this. And then back in 2014, 15, President Obama stepped in as well. If you were a betting man, Peter, and I'm not sure if you are, but what sort of odds would you give me on uh, the PMA ILWU striking a deal before July the 1st? You know, we really have our ear to the ground on this, Mike, and we've got really good sources at the heart of this. And we don't know. We don't know because, you know, you could have two lists. One list says there will be disruption and the other list says there won't be disruption and here are the reasons. And on those lists are factors that we haven't seen before, like the political angle and like automation and like the fact that the carriers are minting money and the fact that the the disruption that we're already seeing is of historic proportions. And the union, you could put on the side of there will be disruption, the fact that this union doesn't care uh, what people think about that. They are perfectly willing to incur any sort of negative PR, people pointing fingers at them, saying they're the ones who are responsible if it achieves their goals at the negotiating table. So that's the history of it. That's objective reality. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent, but 
that's the truth of the matter. So the, the list of factors is very long on both sides. And, and to be honest with you, even the people who were at the middle of it really feel that it could go either way at this point. Peter Tashwell, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure. Alex, what do you see as the big stories to watch out for that the Lodestar journalists will be covering at TPM, maybe particularly on that air cargo side? Well, I think this is going to be about, again, about incorporating air cargo into the integrated logistics that the shipping lines now want to do. You know, they're, they're very powerful. They're, they're in control of the market. Air cargo has always been a, sort of in a vacuum. It's its own silo in terms of logistics. But I think what they'll be discussing at DPM is how you make air cargo part of the wider supply chain and part of the shipping lines strategy as well. I don't think we'll see it sort of on its own in the same way anymore. I think it's all about being incorporated into a greater logistics bundle. Peter, Zenitor is presenting in Long Beach. What's your take on these labour negotiations and how they're impacting that trans-Pacific trade? Yeah, I think from Seneta data, we can basically see right now already that uh, that shippers are really scared about the uh, upcoming uh, labour discussions. It's basically a war building uh, right now, and and we have seen the uh, the, the playbook of that in in Eastern Europe already. It's same same, but fortunately, it's still different. In the end. This is going to be a battle too. I see a clear uh, pattern that what is pushing up those uh, contract rates for the U.S. East Coast right now is basically shippers also being super prudent. I think everybody should expect, say, a rough storm to not only boil, but also to, to come around in the U.S. West Coast later this year. Alex, have you got any thoughts about how any potential slowdown in port activity on the U.S. West Coast due to this union activity might be reflected in the air cargo markets? Well, that's certainly happened before. The last time there was contract negotiations in the US, it was an absolute boon for air cargo. It was, it was in air cargo, I remember, it was one of the best best points of the year. All of a sudden, uh, it took off and prices went up and all the rest of it. This, this time, because the market's so complex anyway, I imagine it will, again, have an effect. Whether it will have quite the same soaring effect it did last time i'm not sure but i i have no doubt it will have effect the the supply chains all seem to be so interconnected now in terms of knock-on effects that i'm, I'm sure that anything else that happens in sea freight is going to affect air freight yeah I, I think definitely that dock workers dispute we've got a lot to look out for there and I, I, this will be discussed again and again over at tpm and in the lodestar of course on that point i would like to introduce another speaker at tpm and that's lee Klaskow who is the Senior Analyst for Transportation and Logistics at Bloomberg Intelligence. Hello, Lee. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Lee, you're speaking at TPM about the bottlenecks that have been causing chaos across the U.S. economy. How stretched would you say the U.S. transport system is right now? You know, it's very strained right now, and a lot of that has to do with labor availability, driver, truck driver availability, and congestion in the ports. You know, we've been saying that the uh, North America supply chains have been dying by a thousand cuts. It's one thing after the next that is really hurting, you know, the supply chain and it's delaying the pace of normalcy we'd like to see. You know, we don't think that's like the supply chains are going to be quote unquote normal until next year because uh, there's a lot of freight that needs to be worked through. 
And while the pandemic is coming to an end, knock on wood, you know, hopefully, it's still impacting labor markets. And so that's been, been a big factor. You know, you have truck drivers because it is a great labor market. They might choose to do other jobs because those jobs either pay better or have better work-life balance or both. Being a trucker in North America, especially one that's over the road, that has regular routes, it's, it's a difficult job because they're away from their families for the better part of a month at a time. And, and, and that obviously is, is difficult if, you know, you want to be involved with your kids or your wife. I mean, listen, some people like being away from their family, but it's, it's not for everybody. We've discussed on this podcast previously that from a business perspective and particularly from a mainstream media perspective in terms of how our industry reaches beyond itself and it impacts daily life and how we all go about our businesses. Certainly in terms of that corporate end of things, logistics was all rather back office. You didn't see a lot of mentions of it in investor reports and financials. How have all of these disruptions shocked U.S. businesses and, and where are we really seeing all this biting those bottom lines? Yeah, well, now you're seeing, you know, more and more logistic professionals kind of reporting directly into the C-suite, whether it's the CFO, COO, or CEO, because it's being such an impact to financials and overall operations. The reality is, is that the, the position that we're in with where supply chains are has really been decades in the making. You know, in the U.S., there was a huge shift to just-in-time inventory. And then you had looking for low cost countries for manufacturing and that really elongated the supply chain. And once you have a minor hiccup in that um, supply chain, things start to go wrong. What we having since the, the pandemic was a lot of things to go wrong, whether it was China shutting down first, then the U.S. shut down. And then when China was pumping out exports, because all of a sudden U.S. consumers were looking for goods rather than services when they're spending their money because they were stuck at home. But there just wasn't the infrastructure in place to take that wave of freight that was coming onto our shores. We think this is going to create a lot of strategic thinking within C-suites, looking for maybe diversifying where they're manufacturing. While I have a global lens, you know, I am somewhat North America-centric because I cover the surface transportation modes here in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. We think that this is going to like reignite the desire for companies to maybe near shore to Mexico, because at the end of the day, it's closer to the consumer and also the, the total loaded cost could be cheaper than coming from uh, from China. We, we've been hearing about nearshoring for so long. We'll, we'll see how that pans out. I mean, everyone always seems to go back to the old ways. So I guess we'll look at that again in a couple of years, but just looking about putting all this into context for. I guess for, for Bloomberg's business audience, but also for your Bloomberg intelligence uh, client database, how would you put all of this chaos into context for them? Our view is because of the, the background that we've been talking about of disrupted supply chains, we're firmly believing that rates will remain high this year. We think that obviously the lighter rates, the 80% increase that we've seen so far this year versus last year. That's unsustainable. We expect rates to moderate, but they are going to be well above historical highs uh, and should produce some great earnings potentials for, for the liners. When we look down at the rails and the trucking, for trucking, we do think that uh, contract rates can increase by low double digits this year off of last year's low double digits. We've been extremely bullish on the trucking cycle this time around. We, we've happened to be pretty good on the call so far. We expect that 
the tight trucking market is, is going to be a lot more prolonged. And that's because like I was mentioning earlier, drivers have other alternatives. Also, there's a, a, a relatively new federal database. It's called the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. It kind of tracks people that have issues with drugs and alcohol and gives them a pathway to kind of clean the record. If you will, there's about like 80,000 drivers that have a mark against their record and they haven't done anything to clear that up. So those are people that have left the industry. So you're having people that are not coming back and you have people that have better alternatives elsewhere. or just more, more opportunities than they might've had in previous cycles. So, um, that coupled with the fact that the OEMs, the trucking manufacturers can't manufacture the trucks and get them on the road. So you, you're going to have a supply, uh, problem, not only from the equipment side, but also from the driver's side, which again, we think rates are going to increase. And for rails, you know, obviously the truck competitive rail stuff is, is going to be priced pretty well. We saw core pricing uh, last year increase around 5%. You know, one of the railroads, Canadian Nationals is one of the, the few rails that still provide that data point while it's so it provides a pretty robust read through for the rest of the rails in terms of where contracts are going. So single digit contracts for the rails, it's really about how can they improve their operations because they're reeling from these supply chains constraints as well. Their train speeds have gone down, their dwell times have increased. These are two bad things when you're looking at a network's fluidity. So they're operating less efficiently. And some of that has to do with the fact that they can't get people to join the railroad or the people that they furloughed in the past aren't coming back. And again, they were home for a while and maybe they enjoy being home or maybe they have different opportunities. You know, a railroad job was a very good job. It's a unionized job here in the United States, has good benefits, pays well. But like a lot of the railroad operators say railroading's an outdoor sport. So you're working in zero degree weather and you're working in 110 degree weather. It is demanding work. So those people might find opportunities that, that might be a little better. And it's also when you're, when you're new to working on the rail, you don't get like, you're not working Monday through Friday, nine to five, you might be working weekends and nights. Uh, and again, that impacts people's work-life balance. And what we've learned from this pandemic is people really do appreciate their time that they have either for themselves, with their friends or with their family. I, for one, am only commuting into the office three days a week. And you know, it's fantastic. I, I don't miss the other two days. I have more time to, I'll say go to the gym, but like, I don't, but more time to think about going to the gym, but it's just, this is something that's impacting organizations, uh, are, are not only here in the U S but around the globe. Thank you for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Peter, just for our listeners, we're speaking on the 22nd of February and Russian tanks have just rolled into Ukraine. We're not quite sure where this goes from here. Some people are calling it an invasion. Russia certainly isn't. If there's more disruption down in that Black Sea area and, and you know, and across Europe, what does this mean for the container trades and trade in general? Yeah, it's, it's a super negative development because what we see right now with the quasi-invasion of, uh, of the eastern uh, Ukrainian parts from, from Russian troops is, of course, bad to business in any way. We have seen carriers already deploying contingency plans in the Black Sea for many uh, weeks and months now. And obviously, nobody wants to get caught in the line of fire here. 
So uh, what I have been looking mostly into has, has been a little bit, say, to the uh, the corridors of ocean shipping, but uh, but rail shipments uh, from uh, China into uh, to to Europe, uh, they do not necessarily cross uh, the front line or, or anything. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that when we have a crisis like this, everything that involves Russia from an international trading perspective is bad business nowadays. Uh, so uh, so things, I'm afraid, will still be worse before they start to improve. And I think we should expect, say, um, that to last uh, not only uh, hours and days, but more weeks or months, as uh, this has been boiling for a long time. And, uh, and I'm afraid it, it will also have, say, more difficulties ahead for carriers and, and shippers uh, across the globe. Dear listeners, in the second part of this podcast, I'm going to take a deeper look at labour shortages across global supply chain when I chat to leading experts, especially about shortages in Europe and the US. In the meantime, Peter Sand, Alex Lenane, thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks very much, Mike. Where have the workers gone? Britain's economic recovery is being held back by labour shortages. The real problem is truck drivers, a shortage of around 100,000 of them, affecting the supply chain of everything from fuel to groceries. So many Americans refusing to go back to their old jobs. And is this creating a labour crisis? Let's get to the bottom line. Labour shortages. It's something we hear a lot about at the Lodestar when we speak to freight and shipping executives. In the US, over 30 million workers are reported to have quit their jobs since the spring of 2021. The trend has even got its own name, the Great Resignation. IHS Market notes that America's labour force now is 4 million lower than pre-pandemic levels. Europe's has been disrupted by reduced movement of migrant workers and Asia's by strict new lockdowns. As you heard from various media in the intro, the UK has an estimated truck driver shortage of 100,000. Similar severe shortages are apparent in the EU and the US. But it's not just trucking. Social distancing work restrictions have hurt capacity in some sectors, such as ports and DCs, while COVID absences have also taken their toll across our industry. We're also hearing a lot about the difficulties of coping with wage inflation when the cost of transport is already higher now than at any time in history for most modes on most lanes. This is affecting everyone from import and export coordinators to warehouse workers. And as labour gets more expensive, as we'll hear later, it's driving uptake of technology. Today, I'll talk to two experts in their field who come at this topic from very different perspectives. A bit later on, we'll hear from Claire French, who's the Air, Sea and Road Freight Recruitment Specialist at Select Appointments UK. We'll discuss the UK's post-Brexit labour peculiarities and whether the higher profile of all things supply chain since the onset of pandemic is encouraging more people to look at the industry for a potential career. But first up, I'd like to introduce someone many of you will have seen on TV or radio and in the trade press offering his unique views on labour supply and many other logistics topics. It's the Associate Professor of Logistics at the Department of Supply Chain Management at Michigan State University's Eli Broad College of Business. Jason Miller, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me on, Mike. You're, you're very welcome. We're honored. Jason, when we hear about these labor shortages adding to supply chain costs and bottlenecks, how serious an issue is all of this in the U.S. at the moment? It, it is substantially serious. So the best measure we have of labor shortages actually comes from the Census Bureau, from a survey about, you know, why are manufacturing plants not operating at full capacity? And right now, labor issues were, have always kind of been there. But it's essentially the magnitude of it sort of doubled if we look at that. So right now, plants are saying this is one of the top reasons that we are not operating at full capacity. Where we're having a challenge, though, of understanding this is how much of this is a shortfall due to people, you know, maybe not wanting to work at that type of job versus they're finding better opportunities elsewhere. And so that's the challenge. If we look into where exactly those shortages are appearing, if we say uh, U.S. warehousing, we've seen this big boom in warehousing demand and a a lot of building going on as well in the U.S. In part, some of this is due to the changing logistics demand of of e-commerce. And a lot of that new work is seasonal. What's your view on complaints that there are not enough workers for some of these industries, including warehouses? Is it as simple as that? Yeah, so warehousing... Our view of actually how much employment there is in warehousing just very much changed last Friday with the benchmark data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, where they essentially revised upward warehousing employment by over 200,000, so essentially 14 more percent. And so we've seen warehousing employment grow tremendously in the United States. And so I think what you have is, one is this combination of, it's one of the fastest growing sectors, which means inherently there will be some firms that can't staff warehouses, you know, as they're opening. Another dynamic is the average number of employees per warehouse has almost doubled since like 2000 and, or 2011, as we've moved more warehousing activity towards pick and pack e-commerce support. And so that adds some additional complexity. The seasonality you can see is tremendously exploded, especially November and December. And then the last piece of the warehousing puzzle is warehousing is increasingly agglomerated in certain geographical locations that are conducive for e-commerce fulfillment or transloading operations. The Inland Empire in California is a great example. Where we've went from in 2014, or about 20,000 people employed in warehousing, to over 100,000 as of 2020. We don't have the 2021 number yet, but I'm guessing that'll be at least 130,000, if not more. And so what I think is also happening is we're putting a lot of strain on certain labor markets to provide enough labor for that industry. So some of of this is about location then. It's about where you think you might build your new warehouse because the best place might not necessarily be where where there's an intersection of of transport links, for example, it might be where there's a sufficient labor pool. I think that that is going to be something that needs to be increasingly considered because we can see this in data at the very detailed level of what counties are warehouses located in. And you can see, you know, outside of Los Angeles, just this explosion. And I think the thing that companies are going to have to consider is, do we have enough labor in an area to support these type of industries? Because we have many areas seen five, six, you know, 500% growth in warehousing employment over a six, seven year period. And that's just unheard of. And so I think that that's one piece that just hasn't been discussed enough, but needs to be considered. Inflation in the U.S. as elsewhere is, is a big issue at the moment, including wage inflation. This is Hamid Mogadam, 
Chief Executive Officer of Logistics Warehousing Giant Prologis, speaking on Mad Money with CNBC's Jim Cramer earlier this year. It's not just the cost, it's, uh, it's just the sheer unavailability of labor. And that's forcing our customers that are using our buildings to invest in technology. And of course, the big ones can afford to do it. But the small and medium-sized businesses, which is the core of the distribution business, they're really having a hard time coming up with the capital necessary to make these investments. So Jason, is this crisis that we've been talking about, is it speeding the introduction of technology in warehouses by those with the funds to invest? Or is this only really happening because of labor shortages and higher costs? You know, I think it's in some ways, it's very difficult to tell because again, as we're seeing warehousing activity in general, transitioning more towards an e-commerce support rule, and especially with a lot of those items being conveyable, that in and of itself makes, you know, adoption of technology more feasible versus if it's, let's say a traditional warehouse where it's mostly forklift operations as an example. Certainly higher labor costs, I mean, make the capital versus labor trade-off more, um, more attractive. One thing to keep in mind is in several areas, especially where warehousing has been increasing tremendously, we actually were seeing wage deflation over a period prior to the pandemic. We saw that in the Inland Empire area where essentially wages in real terms had actually been going down since 2004, all the way through 2017. And then they've now more aggressively rebounded. So I think part of this story too, is the fact that we have seen, you know, not much wage increase in some of these sectors. And now we're baking in a lot of that over a short period, which is making that feel even worse. Just turning to trucking, if we might, Jason, the American Trucking Association most recently said that there's a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers in the US. I know you had a, a look inside some of the stats around this idea, this presumption that there's this death of US truckers that we hear about. What is your take on this? I mean, truck driver hires were, were up rather than down in 2021, weren't they? Yeah, so my, my general take is the story that there is a systematic shortage of truck drivers is very much overblown. So the most recent data that we just had come out last Friday shows, and this is comparing December of 21 relative to December of 2019. So right before the pandemic. Employment and truck transportation in the U.S. is up 26,300. And general freight local, so a lot of that would be e-commerce delivery. So as a subsector, that it's actually that same number. We've seen an increase of 26,300. For over the road, you know, general freight truckload, actually employment's up 6,600. And in less than truckload, it's up 3,900. Where we've seen a shortfall is actually in sort of what we call specialized trucking. So the local specialized is heavily dump truck operations, oil field support services. Their employment's down about 6,000. But that makes good sense because we're not fracking over here like we were. And all indications are we've hit peak oil drilling in the U.S. and it's going to slow down because otherwise all the wells would be exhausted. And we've had employment down about 4,000 and specialized long distance, which is heavily flat bag carrier. And that makes sense because our, in, our manufacturing output, especially heavy manufacturing, is down below what it was certainly in 2018. And so really, I think it's a story of migration of drivers to smaller carriers or creation of new entrants. And I think what that's done is created recruiting challenges for the larger carriers. 
And the ATA is very heavily focused on being sort of a lobby arm for those carriers. So while they may be experiencing driver shortages, there's no shortage of people entering trucking. And, and presumably the, the nature of the demand has changed as, as well with when we've had this logistics supply chain crunch that we've been talking about. Say, for example, a, a truck driver might get stuck waiting at the port of LA for a long period of time. That takes capacity out of that overall availability of drivers, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that certainly does. And the, the inefficiency issues that have come about, you know, for example, if drivers are waiting longer to be loaded and unloaded because it's hard for a receiver to schedule labor at a warehouse. That certainly factors into things. The other thing is take a lane, for example, Los Angeles to Chicago. It's over 2,000 miles. Because of disruptions in the rail side, we have an increased amount of imports that are moving on that lane by truck. That is actually not an easy lane to add a lot of capacity to because once you've now repositioned that truck in Chicago, you've got to get back to California. And a lot more freight flows out of California that flows into it. And so it's difficult to suddenly add 5, 10, 15% capacity on a lane because eventually those drivers have to get back. And if I'm a carrier, I know the import surge is going to decline at some point. Am I going to make an investment to add a driver and add an additional truck given record high used truck prices on hopes that this demand is going to stay? It's not necessarily an attractive option. So one thing people have not really recognized is capacity is not that fungible in trucking. And so when you get these imbalances of 10% higher demand on a certain lane, it causes chaos and the market doesn't quickly address that because there's all these other constraints at play. Just finally, Jason, when we hear big business talking about they can't find the right amount of labor, they can't find the workers, is it sometimes a case of they're not actually offering a job that's attractive for these workers and that maybe that's something that should be looked at as well, whether we're talking about trucking or warehousing? No, it, it, it absolutely is. And I think that, that this is Part of the conversation that we're having right now in the trucking space is we can see in the macro level data, this migration of capacity to smaller carriers, where it's very likely the road relationships between the drivers and management is much more, you know, relaxed and formal. It's much more personable. Carriers are hauling certain lanes that are very appealing to those individuals. I always joke that whenever Walmart says they need additional truck drivers, they're paying about $90,000 a year U.S. for drivers. Walmart doesn't have a shortage of people who want to be truckers. And so they're in a unique position to offer that type of pay and incentives. And so I think the challenge the industry has is figuring out how do we make the jobs better while still doing so in an incredibly competitive sector. And my concern moving forward is once we see the market turn, and the market always turns, and always happens in U.S. trucking. We have a bull market, add too much capacity, then the market turns, is how many companies are going to go out of business because they've been founded with cost structures that are completely unsustainable in a more normal market environment. And so my concern is, for example, 2023, we may see a tremendous number of failures because of that. Jason Miller, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Again, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Over in Europe, logistics businesses are facing many of the same challenges. In the UK, 
the situation is further complicated by the additional bureaucratic complexity that has resulted for cross-channel trade due to the UK's departure from the EU in 2020. The UK has also seen many EU workers depart its shores due to Brexit. Logistics UK, a trade organisation, claims that COVID-19 and Brexit have created a perfect storm of unemployment and skill shortages that are roiling supply chains across the UK, with substantial declines in truckers and forklift drivers now evident, as this podcast has covered previously. Forwarders are also short of labour. Indeed, the Lodestar's Nick Savides has recently been reporting how Manpower Recruitment Agency is now bringing experienced staff in from Hong Kong to fill gaps under the British National Overseas Scheme for Hong Kong citizens wanting to leave the Chinese territory following recent political changes. How stark are these shortages? Well, Logistics UK said Britain's logistics industry employed 2.56 million people in the second quarter of 2021, of whom 11% were European Union nationals, down from almost 14% that were EU nationals in the second quarter of 2019. Pay is also an issue. 56% of those in logistics occupations make less than £26,500 per year, which is about US dollars This compares with 44% for the UK more broadly. However, pay is on the rise, and the logistics industry also has a far higher profile across Europe than it did pre-pandemic. Could this be making it more attractive for potential recruits? These are some of the questions I raised with Claire French. ASC and Road Freight Recruitment Specialist at Select Appointments UK. Claire, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Nice to talk to you. We've heard so much about driver shortages in the UK, in the US, in Europe. Over the last year on the, on the Lodestar podcast, can you give us an overview of employment in Europe's forwarding sector? Has the huge surge in mainstream interest in logistics during the pandemic manifested itself in any way into more people trying to get into the industry? Regards sort of interest, new interest in the sector, sadly not, Mike. I've been advocating for the need to promote the sector, forwarding sector in particular, starting in schools and colleges for, for many years. But I still don't feel that enough's being done to attract young talent or educate young people as to the key part that, you know, the industry plays in everyday life, business. I consider it the fourth emergency service. Uh, where would the other three be without the suppliers and the equipment that, you know, the logistics um, industry provides? So I feel that we need to do more with young people to, to attract them. I am seeing more interest from candidates from sort of unrelated sectors with transferable skills, but the forwarding sector is holding firm to their reluctance really to recruit people without some base exposure. So I've always been an advocate for the need to promote the sector, the forwarding sector in particular, starting in schools and colleges for, for many years, but I still don't feel that enough's being done to attract young talent or educate them as to the, the key part that the industry plays in everyday life. Presumably though, Claire, given all of the extra demands on the industry that we've seen as a result of these global logistics bottlenecks, surely forwarders are absolutely desperate to get more staff in to help. They really are. Demand for skills shows no sign of slowing. I think we've always seen a shortage of skills on the customs clearance side of things that began to 
peak at around sort of July, August 2020, and has pretty much remained at that level ever since. Another big increase in demand from the beginning of last year was on overland operators, uh, European planners. Obviously, Brexit saw a huge increase in business opportunities and ownership of profitability. So salaries in this skill set and on the customs declaration side have risen by around 15%, uh, with the national average sitting at 2.6. It's, it's telling that, you know, salaries are increasing by, by that much because it's supply and demand, you know, borders need these skills desperately. Uh, and did you say there that that's the case on the mainland Europe in EU? It's interesting on the European side, certainly. Just to give you an example, in the Netherlands, operators, their customs declarants in the Netherlands have to have a qualification in order to do their job, uh, a recognised qualification. What that does is increases the value of what they're doing and increases the cost that they can charge their clients for, for a customs declaration. So salaries are higher, their roles are more valued. Perhaps that's something we need to look at in the UK. You know, we look at minimum salaries as a standard, minimum wage, but we don't look at a minimum qualification for this particular role on customs declarations. And it's absolutely crucial and critical for the industry. We can't clear these goods across borders without somebody having those skills and that experience to do it. So I think really on the European mainland and certainly the Netherlands, Salaries do tend to be higher. They are still in demand, people with these skills, but certainly I think that those skills are recognised more and valued higher. Therefore, the product is worth more. Therefore, the profitability is higher. Whereas in the UK, you know, we're sort of battling down for these declarations costs. Everybody's fighting against each other to get them as low as they can go which naturally impacts on the people that are attracted to do the role. You know, the, the attraction's got to be there in terms of salary. So, Claire, aside from salary, forwarders and 3PLs, they're reluctant to employ people at the moment because they haven't got the experience, but they're also reluctant to train people up for fear of losing them, even though they desperately need them. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I would agree. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. I think some of the bigger forwarders, the three and four PLs, do fortunately have the luxury of time to train new young recruits. Whereas the SMEs, this is going to be challenging. You know, a lot of their operators handle the customer's file from point of origin right up to closure, arranging the order haulage, invoicing the customer, doing everything. So. A lot of the bigger forwarders break that process down, which obviously helps replace staff. If there's a shortfall, if everybody's doing less of a bigger process, they're more easily replaceable. Whereas for the SMEs, it's more challenging. They don't have that luxury of time to trade. But with some skilled operators for those forwarders handling the workload of two people, seeing more experience leave the sector in the last year due to stress levels and workload, so something's got to give. It is a bit of a vicious cycle, but we do need to bring more young people into the sector. We do need to offer them that training that's available and try and break this skill gap that's, that's continually widening. You know, overworking experience and overlooking trainees is only going to widen that skill gap. 
I think you're highlighting very important issues there that, that will probably resonate with people from Australia to Singapore to LA to Mumbai, this gap between supply and demand of key workers in this sector, and also this pay gap between what people want and, and what people can afford to pay them or are willing to pay them. Have you got any reasons for optimism that we'll see an improvement, certainly in the availability of these core skill sets in the UK, at least? in 2022-2023? Yeah, definitely. I think on a positive at Select Logistics, we've placed more lower level support roles for the forwarding sector in 2021 than we did in 2020. So hopefully that trend will continue year on year. I'm definitely seeing an increase in, in you know, entry-level candidates. The industry demand is forcing the issue. They've got to bring people in and train them. There, there isn't really an alternative. The new customs declaration service, the CDS, will go live for input declarations September this year and for export declarations in March next year. At that point, the chief system will be redundant. So there's no better time to include trainees in that transition this year. So I'm expecting to see a lot more lower level and entry level people coming into forwarding this year. And as I say, with all of the training, external training platforms out there that are available, hopefully forwarders will take full advantage and uh, bring these people in and up. Claire French, thanks for joining me on the Low Star podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to talk to you. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Hay for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.